Hi, my name is Alex Conconi. I'm a private investor from Vancouver, Canada, and recently we've been doing a series of calls with leaders on various topics. And given the increasingly large role the government's playing in both public life and the economy, today we're focusing on politics. Many Canadians are aware that when Donald Trump won the U.S. presidency in 2016, it was actually Hillary Clinton who won the popular vote. However, most Canadians are unaware that while the Liberals have won the last three elections in Canada, the Conservatives have actually won the popular vote in the last two. My guest today is Aaron O'Toole, who became the Conservative Party leader in August of 2020 and who faced an election during the pandemic in 2021 in which the Liberals were able to win enough seats to form a minority government, but in which Aaron's party won the popular vote. He was a member of Canada's military, a lawyer who worked on Bay Street, and after 11 years as a member of Parliament, he recently announced he's stepping down from politics. Aaron, I'm sure you saw it, but last month there was a Globe and Mail article that called you uh, one of the best prime ministers Canada never had. The article started off by saying that Aaron O'Toole was just not angry enough and went on to say, Mr. O'Toole's accommodating reasoned approach has gone out of style. Well, I for one think that your style is great, so please don't change it. In <laughs> fact, it's a big part of why I'm so excited to talk to you today. So thank you for spending the time to speak with me. Hey, thank you, Alex. And uh, gosh, not only did I see that article, I cut it out of the paper. That was a good one. Um, <laughs> certainly needed after some of the, the slings and arrows you take. But I also loved your intro. So I guess your intro is comparing Justin Trudeau to Donald Trump because he didn't win the popular <laughs> vote, but he got to serve as, uh, as our chief executive, as our leader. Uh, I like that comparison. Let's start there. <laughs> okay. Well, all right. Well, speaking of emotion, I wanted to start today with a quote from Mr. Trudeau, but not Justin. This one comes from his dad, Pierre. I was watching an interview of him on Charlie Rose from 1994, and it struck me when he said to Charlie that some politicians, and not always the more successful ones, want to put aside a uh, emotions and explain to people why they're doing things. They believe that if people are told the problems and if solutions are explained to them, the people will understand them. The others would rather appeal to emotion and are demagogues and both systems work, but one works to the detriment of the people and the other to the flowering of democracy. That was back in 1994, about 30 years ago, well before the rise of social media and clickbait headlines and character limitations on Twitter. But I can't help but wonder, is it possible for a politician to capture people's attention with reason or is tapping into emotion a fundamental part of being a political leader today? That's a great question, Alex. I think it, it's going to take a little bit of both. Um, but, you know, I feel that I always tried to have that reasoned approach to, to lay out the priorities of the country um, and propose great solutions. It's, it's tough, though. And, and I think especially during a pandemic, uh, I don't think we did that well enough. Uh, as leader, I take responsibility for for losing um, in the final stretch. But it was very tough because of the emotions of a public health emergency. And so what's funny with that great quote you've uncovered from, from Pierre Trudeau, it seems like I ran a campaign based on that quote, although he hinted that not always the most successful politicians try and take that approach. And his son, Justin, used the emotion of the pandemic, particularly the vaccine mandate. You may remember in French, he called people that were unvaccinated, he compared them to misogynists and racists. And there was a real demonization of millions of people who may not have been vaccinated for everything from 
fear and, and uncertainty or lack of trust in in our healthcare systems, whether they're people from uh, indigenous or or black backgrounds, BIPOC people have higher hesitancy. Um, for whatever reason, there was a large number and it was wrong to demonize those people at a time we needed to work together. So I always tried to take that approach in politics. I've had more successes than failures in politics. It's just my biggest failure falling short the national election, everyone knew who I was by that point. My early successes, hardly my community even knew who I was at that point. So on balance, I'm, 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 I'm looking forward to new challenges, but uh, I'm very proud of what, what was accomplished in the decade. Um, well, speaking of, uh, of hot button issues, recently it was in the news that the CRTC was launching a public con uh, consultation on banning Fox News from Canadian airwaves. And personally, I'm not a particularly big fan of Fox News, um, but this came as a pretty big shock to me. I thought for sure Fox News would benefit from freedom of speech. I mean, isn't that what it's for? Someone you don't like should be able to say something that you don't like. Uh, you know, the U.S. famously has a First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which simply states Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or of the press. And when researching our own protections at home, I was pointed to Section 2B of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which says that everyone has the fundamental right to freedom of thought, belief, opinion and expression, including freedom of the press and other media of communication. So this seemed pretty clear to me. In fact, even more clear than the First Amendment, maybe. So what's going on here? Should the fact that the CRTC is considering this alarm people? It should. And there's a lot of concerns about an erosion of free speech rights. And I'm glad you've quoted both the Charter and the U.S. approach. Going even further, Alex, our Supreme Court has considered this issue with respect to where uh, do the bounds of, of, of free speech have some limits in Canada. And it's the hate speech uh, area where there had to be um, active promotion of violence towards an identifiable group. And it's it comes from um, some of the neo-Nazi, the Ernst Zundel, Holocaust denier sort of stuff that he was teaching his students. And, and that went up to the Supreme Court uh, of Canada, that issue. And so in Canada, we have broad free speech uh, uh, rights as citizens. And the, the court has actually given detail about the limitation of it. And so outside of those identifiable hate speech provisions, there should be free speech. And if you defend these principles, you should defend just as loudly speech that you find repugnant as long as it doesn't cross that line. So I think I'm concerned alongside yourself and other people that if the Liberals try and pressure the CRTC to, to ban Fox News, for example, that would be a complete attack on, on free speech, even though I find some of the stuff on, on Fox News, some of the Tucker Carlton's fantasy routines to be, to be disturbing. But there, there should be no role for the CRTC taking political direction. There's a great article, I think, in The Globe uh, today or yesterday um, from a former CRTC commissioner who talked about how the government stopped RT, Russia Today, by asking the CRTC to look at them. That is a completely different scenario. I've had concerns about RT for years because it was actually a Russian propaganda tool 
by the states intending to misinform. So what I've always said is we either had to warn people of that um, or, or talk about if it was targeting the Ukrainian diaspora in Canada, uh, perhaps making sure that it wasn't a regular cable funded channel. That's completely different than Fox News that is, is not a state run organization for sure under the Biden administration, but certainly curtails to certain voters. That is what free speech will promote. So you, if you're a true, a true supporter of democracy and of our rights and individual freedoms, you have to support the free speech of people you oppose. And I think we need, uh, we need to take that approach as a, as, as a society, and certainly the government should follow that. Well, you know, I think there's something very appealing about silencing the opinions you don't like. Cancel culture has been playing out uh, on the internet, university campuses, and in Hollywood for years now. And at first, I'll admit that even I found it somewhat enjoyable to watch some people get canceled for what I believe to be their poor behavior. Um, even if it was a case of guilty before proven innocent, it felt good. Um, but deplatforming's emergence into the political sphere seems to be an important Rubicon. And you know, if I take the trucker convoy, for example, last year, a, you know, a small mortgage investment fund that I'm involved with was given a list of names from the regulators who told us to freeze the accounts of anyone whose name was on that list, some of whom were on that list for simply making a small cash contribution to the protest via an online funding platform like GoFundMe or I forget exactly the platforms that were used. But what worries me is that if, if this is normalized now with a liberal government, what happens when the conservatives are in power? And, you know, I like to think if you were PM, uh, you wouldn't do this, but power like this can be tempting to use, which is why I think it's important for all Canadians to be careful to lean into the us versus them thinking on these issues. What do you make of all this? How can we avoid uh, this in the future? I agree. There's a lot there, Alex. Um, the cancel culture uh, phenomenon has reached, I would say, almost epidemic levels because it 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 started uh, as a way of of you know challenging a rival opinion, but now it is meant to completely silence speech or literally take people's opinions out of the public sphere, and this relates so closely to the free speech issue is whether it's on Twitter or whether it's in the public square, the traditional free speech environment. Um, you may oppose someone and someone you may find, as I said, repugnant their views, but that doesn't mean you have a right to cancel them from sharing them in the public square, going back to the, the era of the Magna Carta, maybe through to today. And I think we're having this phenomenon where increasingly people are using the power of networks. So the power of a social media to attack opposing viewpoints, um, whether it's the share price of a company, whether it's the existence of somebody on a, on a social media platform, or whether it's a historic figure uh, like a Sir John A. Macdonald statue, you know, people will leverage that strength, particularly almost like an online mob and apply that mob power towards an objective. And I think we have to be very, very careful not to allow this to be normalized. So as, as you've said, will this phenomenon transfer over to conservatives in the future who will, you know, apply it after left-wing environmental groups or, you know, uh, 
uh, groups like the uh, sort of neo-Marxist groups you see online, that would then mean it's a permanent addition to our politics and that would be destructive. I don't think conservatives would do that. Um, but I think what we need is we need more serious conversations in this country to address these issues outside of mob rule. I, I proposed a way to do this several years ago with respect to statues and things like Sir John A. Macdonald statues, having a logical approach to discussions about our past and our future. But so far, the the Liberal government of Mr. Trudeau loves using these issues, whether it's the Langevin building here or whether it's statues around the country, to promote identity politics. And I think it, it over time, is hurting our society. Well, you know, it occurs to me that even I need to be careful asking these questions because we live in this busy world where people make quick judgments based on very little information. And so while I don't think we're discussing anything cancelable here, um, there's many in my network that would judge me for, uh, you know, they, they look at me as being a staunch conservative for t talking to you and asking these questions, despite the fact that I've actually voted for Trudeau before and have voted for three of the major Canadian parties. So, you know, I feel some pressure to, uh, it, it's it's funny to, to censor myself because of this this um, you know which I'm pushing back against here, but but um, you know I, I worry that that if if we do that and if we allow that to become the norm, then only the most radical people are going to be able to be willing to say anything of any substance, and um, you know I think that's only going to then reinforce them getting more attention from from you know normal people, and you know so. Anyways, if you're hearing me now, please don't judge. I think it's important that we uh, all think aloud and be allowed to stumble through these uh, these complicated topics. No, well, I think it's great you've provided that perspective. You know, I didn't come on this show because uh, I, I thought you were a conservative. Uh, I've noticed your YouTube channel and some of your commentary on everything from having Benjamin Tal to Peter Zehan. You've tried to have informed, smart, longer form discussion. I think that's is the antidote to the to the stupidity of, of of Twitter fights is let's take this out of the these little online tit for tats and actually have serious discussion on some difficult topics. And so you've had some great sections on on AI, on Canada, on resources, on trade, um, the economy, housing. That's what we need more of. And I think this is why I've I any any invitation like this. I didn't take because I'm trying to win conservative voters. I really think we need more smart commentary and social media. Now that now that Elon Musk owns Twitter, I found that Twitter has gone from far left mobs <laughs> to far right mobs because a lot of the, the left have, have left. How can we actually get available people who want to hear a smart argument to gather and come up with solutions or discussions for the future. I think podcasting, uh, some smart YouTube, um, and some commentators that are willing to call things out um, are the way to do that. And so mm -hmm. uh, I'm happy to contribute to the conversation. Well, thank you. Thanks for joining me. Um, you know, speaking of new media, a few weeks ago, Canada gave royal assent to the Online Streaming Act, which, from what I understand, gives the CRTC, the Canadian Radio, Television and Communications Commission, new powers to regulate online content, presumably to make more Canadian specific content uh, more readily available. As a Canadian 
uh, YouTuber. I thought this might be something that can, I'm a new YouTuber, but I, I thought this might be something that could help me reach more Canadians. But as I was trying to understand what's going on, I'm surprised to see that a lot of YouTubers like me were actually quite strongly against it. So I, I'm, I'm wondering if you can help me here. What is your understanding of what is the, what this act actually does and who wanted this act, who opposed it? What, what's it actually do? Well, the intention of this act, C-11, um, which had an earlier form in another bill, but it was the government will say they're leveling the playing field uh, between Canadian content producers, artists, uh, the creative class, and the large U.S. streaming giants, which, of course, we all use and we all enjoy, but kind of dominate uh, dominate culture in Canada. And so there's there's undertakings for those streamers to have financial contributions into Canada. And it's mandating some of that um, to, to so-called level the playing field. The real insidious part of this and what, what concerns a lot of people, particularly content creators on YouTube, for example, is that, is this the government's attempt to now regulate user-generated content? So Alex uh, starting a, a, a smart uh, YouTube channel to talk about real estate, to talk about public policy issues. Really, are you a broadcaster in the sense of what the CRTC was meant to regulate or, you know, 100-year-old approach to broadcast regulation where we didn't want 20 people in Vancouver using the same uh, part of the electromagnetic spectrum and start broadcasting pirate radio in their homes. Mm -hmm. You know, this was meant to provide some certainty to a finite public airwaves and to, to, to regulate broadcasters in a way that was transparent and fair with, with the social media uh, explosion, people have the ability to generate their own content. In some, in some cases, some of it's amazing content. I don't think a YouTube, a YouTuber from Vancouver, whether it's you or someone else, is intended to be regulated by the people that regulate Rogers, Bell, and, and major broadcasters. Um, this is the real concern people have with C11. And the government, through two iterations, has only perpetuated these concerns. They, they haven't addressed them in some of the amendments and proposals that former CRTC chairs like Conrad von Finkenstein or Michael Geist, the media uh, expert law professor. The government just ramrodded this through, Alex, and that reinforces mm -hmm. people, people's concern that the unintended consequences is that the government will start curtailing some of that content or that free speech that users are generating. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. I mean, I think they made a big deal about uh, cat videos and saying that cat videos won't be regulated. But the reality for people like me is that I do turn on the monetization features on YouTube. So if you're getting an ad during this, this uh, watching this, thank you. Um, but uh, uh, and so I think as a consequence, um, this content would be captured is my understanding, but it's it does seem a little, a little unclear. Um, it does. Well, and, and a bit unfair, you know, because the Internet and social media and streaming are here. And so many users have taken advantage of that freedom. Are we now going to change the way people interact with the internet? Mm -hmm. um, connect this, Alex, to your comments earlier about Fox News. Mm -hmm. In the hands of a government that is slowly going down 
the rabbit hole of, of control or censorship, um, are some of your, uh, not your, but if some YouTuber is making some sensational sort of claims, are they, is the CRTC going to block them too? And so mm -hmm. these are all questions the government has not answered on C11. Uh, mm -hmm. It has a lot of people, particularly younger Canadians who, who have grown up with social media, uh, millennials especially, should be very concerned that this is an example of government overreach. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, at minimum, it should be clear how it's going to work. Um, well, if YouTube and, and the internet has disrupted the world of traditional media, it seems like AI might be poised to disrupt nearly everything else, uh, including the internet and, and uh, YouTube. Um, since the introduction of ChatGPT late last year, the pace of AI advancement has been impossible to ignore. And uh, the best-selling author, uh, Yuval Noah Harari, who wrote the book uh, Sapiens, he wrote the book Homo Deus, uh, he recently wrote in The Economist that deep fakes have hacked the operating system of civilization by making it so easy to impersonate one another, either on the phone or video with obvious consequences for elections with, you know, pretending to be politicians or it's being used in the war in Ukraine, pretending to be, uh, you know, government uh, uh, communications from either side. So on the flip side, there's also many ways that AI can help make life better by innovating the way that we conduct research, development, uh, improve our delivery models. BARD, Google's answer to ChatGPT, was uh, released in 180 countries last week, but notably not Canada, possibly due to uh, the proposed Artificial Intelligence Data Act, which is being considered by Parliament, from what I understand. So um, that could be frustrating for some Canadian users who might not be able to play with it, but um, it also poses a pretty big risk for Canadian companies who compete abroad but don't have access to these tools. And I mean, Canada and, and some provinces in particular, like Ontario and Quebec, have made big uh, efforts to try to attract and retain a lot of this AI talent. So I wonder, how is the Canadian government, uh, you know, both parties, all parties, the whole house, um, thinking about this? And how do you think governments and democracies in particular are going to respond? This is another important area that I'm glad you've already started tackling. You had one of our prominent AI researchers, a Canadian on your, on your program, and Canada actually had some of the early thought leaders in AI out of Toronto, out of Montreal, out of Vancouver. And I think we are in the infancy of addressing the rapid increase of, of machine learning, of, of AI and their interface with everyday Canadians. As you said, people are enjoying playing with chat GPT and, you know, there's, there's been the amusing, you know, Shakespearean sonnets uh, being written in the voice of, of someone or on certain topics. We've all kind of been fascinated by that. But if you actually combine this with uh, malevolence in the political co context, it's, it's very dangerous. And then, of course, the rapid advancement of AI has uh, even prominent scholars and, and, you know, IT and IP moguls signing letters saying we should do a pause. Um, are, are we on the verge of Skynet? I don't think anyone really knows the, the regulatory or even moral uh, underpinnings that we have to develop in AI. So I do think this is an area that needs some regulation. Where, where we do that without putting our own 
uh, private sector at a disadvantage, I think is really what the government should be looking at in terms of some of its bills and legislations, including Bill C-27. There's two key aspects from a regulatory standpoint that I think are important, Alex. One is, is data protection, because mm -hmm. AI and big data are why we're seeing such amazing announcements. It's this big access to data that allows AI to generate better, better models and be more predictive, whether it's, you know, through language learning or, or, or other means. And there's incredible possibilities in healthcare, in diagnosis and in advancement that would be good for, for everyone, for mankind. The same time though, the removal of that human interface, particularly in questions that have a moral or a political dimension could be very dangerous. And then the deep fake phenomenon and, and, and election interference, gosh, we've already seen that with Beijing interfering in our elections. I was, the, I was the victim of that, to be honest with you. And as were many of my, my, my candidates and friends. So this is where I think we need, we need regulation is we need transparency. We, we need people to be able to own, uh, own their data and to be able to, you know, refuse to have some of their personal information, even if it's open source included in some of these models. The EU has looked at that in terms of consent for, for people's personal data. So I think Canada and the US and other countries have to sort of say, are we going to have this level playing field with respect to, to the use of big data and your personal information in it? Um, my colleague, Michelle Rempel-Garner is probably one of the most uh, respected and advanced parliamentarians on the AI front, but I'll be honest, I'm not much further than um, an informed member of the public that's followed chat GPT, followed some of the writing and, and commentary. But I think most Canadians have no idea how this, this is already happening, um, whether it's you looking to book a trip or some of these virtual agents and concierge. They also don't know how much of their open information is out there being crunched. So I think public awareness and regulation are needed. Yeah, well, you, you, you mentioned China and I want to I want to come back and talk about China in a second here. But um, first, I want to ask you about the United States. So, you know, you and I first met and bonded over our appreciation of Peter Zion and um, his fast takes on all sorts of things. Um, one thing he talks about is Canada's lack of interprovincial trade. And I spoke to him a few months ago, and he pointed out that each province in Canada trades more with the U.S. state to its south than it does with its neighboring provinces. Uh, his thesis also suggests that the U.S. is going to be increasingly focused on domestic and regional affairs, North American-centered, you know, Canada and Mexico, rather, rather than international policing, and that some of the friendlier arrangements that Canada has counted on with the U.S. could be com coming under increasing scrutiny. So... Uh, what do you make of our relationship with the U.S. and should Canada do more to unite our domestic economy? Two questions there. One, I'm very worried about the Canada-U.S. relationship. I've never seen it lower. Uh, President Biden had a very successful visit here about a month and a half ago, gave a great speech in the House, to be honest with you. Um, but the first day of his presidency, he canceled the Keystone XL pipeline without really any serious consideration for his closest ally. Um, we have 
some of the protectionism we see in the US that runs contrary to generations of trade and collaboration. Certain moves in, in the Arctic are a step back from their basic recognition of our sovereignty over the Arctic. Uh, Northwest Passage, for example, uh, that happened under the Trump presidency. Uh, Mr. Trudeau's only success in Washington was getting a state dinner where some celebrities attended. He's given up so much, including data sharing with the U.S. on entry and exit. So I've never seen the relationship so bad. And it's one of the areas that I really worry about as we're seeing a deglobalization take place, the removal of China from supply chains, we need to make sure that Canada is considered domestic like it was under the auto pact for a lot of the, the manufacturing and critical commodities that will be coming home. Um, friendshoring, as Janet Yellen quoted and Christopher Freeland loves parroting all the time, only counts if you're a friend. Domestic capacity is something I've been demanding for years and people used to say, I was crazy saying we needed a Canada first or a North American first approach to trade. Um, I saw that pre-Trump when Obama started tariffing uh, Chinese steel and aluminum because they were gaming international trade laws and they were certainly gaming climate change emission laws. So we need to get serious and we need to make sure that we rehabilitate that, uh, that, US, that US relationship. Um, I don't think it's going to be done under a, a Trudeau government, to be honest with you. So I think the Zehan uh, video you had nailed it on how the Mexicans negotiated in a smarter fashion with the United States than Canada did. We, we hoped we were going to be this special friend that we simply aren't. And that's with a Democrat and a liberal government that, uh, that you would think would get along better than Trudeau and Trump. But really, there's been no noticeable improvement. Mm. Well, what, what do you think Canada can do at home to try to unite our economy and, and um, it, you know, increase the success of our interprovincial trade? Yeah, that was the second part of your question. I ranted too much on the first part. Sorry no. about that. Um, interprovincial trade is something that you know, my, my friend James Moore, when he was the minister for British Columbia, is from Vancouver first really started pushing about breaking down the interprovincial trade barriers. Uh, the Western provinces have done it themselves a little bit, but there's about $2 billion worth of GDP addition if we can do this uh, countrywide. And I think there really needs to be an end to these sort of provincial monopolies and restrictions on trade. Ontario has been a big hold, hold up in this, to be honest with you, but I think we need to do it because it's making us less efficient and less trade competitive. So beverage alcohol is the, is the biggest example. Um, my friend Dan Albus had a free my grape campaign to allow BC uh, wines into, into Ontario. Uh, then we had free my beer, the same sort of concept. Uh, he even then started saying, Hey, maybe Canada post can be the federal workaround of these provincial laws by saying Canada Post has to send between provinces. I really think the the Supreme Court has dropped the ball a few times in recent years. They've been too timid. One of them was a case called Camo, where a guy was fined for bringing beer from a Costco in Quebec into New Brunswick. 
give me a break. Are we really worried about these things in, in the modern age of, of global trade? Uh, the, the Supreme Court should have taken a different view towards an old 1930s case that was really about the protectionism a lot of provinces had around, around dairy and around beer production and other things. The country has changed. The, the court will often say that rights emerge in this living tree concept approach to constitutional law. This was a case where that same living tree should have reflected the fact that the protectionist tendencies um, of, of the early part of Canada have no place today. Canada was created to trade amongst ourselves as a, as a bulwark against U.S. expansionism after the, the U.S. Civil War. So the Supreme Court got it wrong almost 100 years ago, and we should correct the playing field today. Hmm. That's very interesting. Well, after the U.S., perhaps our most important relationship is with China. It's our second largest trading partner. Um, it's one of our top sources for new permanent residents in Canada year after year. Um, you know, China's benefited from rapid economic growth over the past few decades and has an increasingly large presence on the world stage as a result. Uh, yet, in spite of all of our integration economically and in, even increasingly culturally, many people worry that we have a value alignment issue at the foundation of our relationship with the administration there, where they seem to always take a very forceful and retaliatory approach, in my, in my mind, uh, to anything they perceive to be critical or negative, whether it's, you know, not putting the map the right way on a t-shirt sold by the Gap or uh, expelling somebody or just saying something they don't like. Um, you know, I don't have many relationships in my in my personal world where I'm able to treat my friends that way and and uh, stay friends long term. Um, you know, so I, I guess, you know, there's been a number of issues specifically in the news lately. But zooming out, I wonder, what do you think the future of this relationship is? And how can Canada best position itself to, uh, you know, defend our values? Another great question. The relationship with China will be will be a troubling one in the coming years. And that's not because of us. That's because of the communist regime in China and particularly President Xi's doubling down on some of the worst aspects of socialism with Chinese characteristics is how they describe communism in, in Beijing. But in, in 2017, the 19th People's Congress was a gargantuan move by Xi to exert complete control at home and abroad for the Communist Party. Um, and we always have to be clear with that. This, China itself has an ancient history that's, that's incredible in, in their early technological advances. Their art culture is, is incredible. Our issue is not with China uh, or the millions of Canadians of Chinese origin. Our issue is with a political philosophy that has subjugated millions of people over the last century in the Soviet Union and, and in China and some other parts of the world. And we're seeing it actually hold back China. So the Communist Party exerted complete control over the state through social tracking of people, of, of social credit scores, of, of mass surveillance, incarceration of minorities, including the, the Uyghur genocide that's taking place. Um, they're, they're sterilizing 
people. That's a form of, of genocide, incarcerating people. Um, and then the Belt and Road Initiative and the, the, the control that Beijing has over its large state players like Huawei make it a completely communist-dominated private sector. And so I've had this debate with a former Chinese ambassador who used to compare Huawei to uh, Air Canada that used to be a crown corporation. Um, when there was a crown corporation, the prime minister and his cabinet could not control all aspects of that company. And so they view what they're doing as similar to what we've done in our past. You know, we've privatized a lot of things that the government used to own when that's not the case at all. Every Chinese company controlled or state owned has to be part of the foreign affairs activities of Beijing. And so that means Huawei and our 5G would have been a gargantuan risk. I've been talking about that for seven years. It was just in the last year that, that Mr. Trudeau finally took Huawei out of consideration for constructing our 5G network. So the next number of years are going to see the Western world starting to call out some of the trade practices and some of the human rights practices of China. That will mean Canadians will be paying more for some products. Um, that's tough in an inflationary time. I get it. But our foreign policy needs to be based on our economic interests and on our values. And the Western countries are now realizing after decades of trying to do that in China, the value part of that equation was just too disrupted to continue. And so we have to say our economic interests are so divergent from our values that we have to correct it by finding new supply chains, imposing tariffs or restrictions on Chinese players or, or goods. It's going to be a challenging relationship for the next two years. And Mr. Trudeau is just waking up to this now, and I don't think he's up for the challenge. Speaking of Canada's international relationships, the Washington Post recently reported that Justin Trudeau let our NATO partners know that Canada will never meet the military alliance's defense spending targets and that our widespread military deficiencies are harming ties uh, with our security partners and allies. Specifically, a leaked Pentagon assessment alleges that Canada could not conduct a major operation while simultaneously maintaining its NATO battle group leadership in Latvia and aid to Ukraine. So we're behind on spending and recruitment, but it's also worth noticing, noting that we're a small country population-wise, trying to punch above our weight to defend the second largest country by landmass in the world. I'm curious, I mean, I know that you've spent some time in our military. How can we invest our talent and resources in the most effective ways to protect our land and our way of life? We have to have a plan to make our NATO spending target. That's 2% of GDP spent on defense and security. You've highlighted why, Alex. We have uh, the second largest landmass, the most coastline, of any, uh, any continental player. Um, probably Australia has more coastline because it's a big island, but you know we're on three oceans, the Pacific where you are, Atlantic and Arctic. We've got some of the most challenging um, uh, sea approaches in the North Atlantic and in, in the Arctic. And with climate change, we're seeing more of the Arctic navigable. Uh, we're seeing cruise ships in the Northwest Passage which was a century ago, 
almost an impassable task. Uh, the Franklin expedition of a, of, of a few centuries ago is famous for dying in, in the Northwest Passage or the search for it. Now there's cruise ships running aground up there because it's open. And right now, even our closest ally, the United States, views that as an international waterway rather than the domestic internal waterway that it is. So we need a plan to increase our spending to give our men and women who serve in uniform the equipment they need. And I've laid out over many years as one of the few veterans in the House of Commons, I've been a bit of a, a hawk on defense issues, which in the grand scheme, a Canadian hawk is more like a sparrow in the US. But sure. I, I think Canadians, even those without any connection to the military, except for maybe a great grandfather or something, if Canadians knew we were gonna give our men and women the equipment they needed, if they knew we were going to better safeguard our sovereignty in the Arctic, and if they also knew we were making major investments in cybersecurity to protect their banking and, and financial information, to protect our electricity grid, I think those are all expenditures that most Canadians, even some of the lefties in, in on Gabriola Island in, in your province might be willing to say, you know what? A modern country has to protect its citizens and its, its, its economy first and foremost. And, you know, the DARPA spending in the United States, literally the defense research spending created Silicon Valley in many ways and the internet. So some of that spending can help us on an industrial level, and on an innovation level, but we have to have a long-term, nonpartisan approach to meet our commitments. My final thing on this, I'll say, Alex, Canada should be a leader amongst middle powers. And to do that, we should live up to what we sign on to. NATO commitments, international aid, the 0.7% of GDP, even though we're not a former colonial power, we should help with that developmental assistance. And third, climate change. If we commit to emission reductions, we commit to a plan to get there, a, a, mm. a tough one. But if we then are known as a country that keeps its word, that steps up, that over delivers, it will give us more positional strength to exert our interests better uh, after many years of, of our, our allies kind of ignoring us, it would be a way to to show Canada stepping up and meeting its commitments. Well, so uh, you know, a lot of a lot of this stuff involves spending, and um, you know, when you spend more than you take in, you you get to debt, which you know, there's so there's prioritization of what we spend our money on, but there's also the efficiency and, and effectiveness of of how we spend our money. Um, you know, the the Canada really began to build what seems to be very large structural. Uh, deficits while interest rates were really low. The interest rate situations changed uh, quite dramatically over this last year. Um, the Fraser Institute recently reported that as of July 2022, Canada's public sector represented nearly 22% of all jobs in the Canadian economy. And that's a, so that's about like one in five. So it's a lot. Uh, when I saw that, I was shocked. So, you know, and for context, that's nearly double the United States and almost the same as Venezuela. So are we spending our tax dollars effectively? And 
is this, you know, we've got this big debt ceiling conversation happening in the States right now. Um, it, you know, how is this going to be brought under control without cutting thousands of jobs? Or is that the only way? No, but this will take real leadership. And I'll, I'll tell you, one of the areas that, um, you know, I feel I didn't perform where, uh, as well as I should have. Uh, if I use your bar of that Pierre Trudeau quote from the beginning of the interview is somebody trying to not use emotion, but explain where the country needs to go in an election. And even today in the House of Commons, Christian Freeland was re responding to Pierre Polyev saying, what are the conservatives going to cut? What are you going to cut? You're, you're, you know, you're against my spending, but what are you going to cut? Are you going to cut daycare? Are you going to cut this? In election campaigns, you don't want to talk a lot about the cuts. So because we were in pandemic spending and, and Justin Trudeau was giving anybody that wanted the CERB the CERB for unlimited time and just running up billions in debt and non-strategic, wasteful debt in many cases, I really think if we want to make our commitments, as I said, on defense, on security, but on climate, on indigenous reconciliation, on all these important priorities, we then have to say, what long-term structural changes do we need financially? Personally, I think that the, the most reckless decision Justin Trudeau made in his first few years as prime minister was rolling back the changes to old age security that Stephen Harper had made, changing the old age security eligibility from 65 to 67. We're both fans of uh, Peter Zahan, the, the demographic uh, demigod. Mm -hmm. Our demographics take away immigration, which is increasing increasing in a, in a large way, which is positive, but causing housing bubbles and other things. Our demographics are aging. We have a below replacement birth rate. So Harper prudently said, we're going to make changes to old age security far enough out that it, it affects nobody in the short term in the next 15 years. But for people like you or me, we want people working longer for labor supply issues and for demographic issues. So therefore, you're going to get old age security at 67. Old age security is not a pension. It is paid out of government revenues. And with an aging population, that two years represented 20 plus billion dollars uh, on almost a two or three year cycle mm -hmm. in a few years. And, and Trudeau, with the stroke of a pen, changed that massive, massive amounts of money and, and not smart money because mm -hmm. people would already have CPP. That was a pension they were paying into. But the old age security, we should have pushed off because we want people working longer. Mm -hmm. the, the daycare program that we in part lost an election on, that is not smart policy because it doesn't work for most citizens. Anybody who's on shift, the nurses we've been praising rightly after COVID, if they're on a mm -hmm. shift, that, you know, a classic new daycare doesn't support them, nor does it help rural families going back to a baby bonus type system, which is what Trudeau's father had, which is what Harper had with a child benefit that allowed parents to make the decision. That would be much smarter and much more cost effective in the long term. So just those two programs alone, Alex, those changes would pay for everything I've talked about. Mm -hmm. um, but it's easy to promise free everything, mm -hmm. free daycare, free this. You know, the, the, the Trudeau government, I'll, I'll stop ranting in a minute, but 
I found it so ironic in 2015, Trudeau used Hazel McCallion, the late mayor from Mississauga, to attack us on our changes to old age security. The irony was Hazel McCallion was famous for being mayor of Mississauga into her 90s. She embodied the reason why we have to change old age security from 65 to 67, because gosh, Hazel was only at mid-career by 67. You know, so if we don't respond to major demographic changes as guys like Zehan or Daryl Bricker and John Ibbotson wrote a book called Empty Planet, mm-hmm. we're gonna heat, po- hit peak population in a few decades and start shrinking. We have to make sure that our programs and our major spending, social security type programs, fit the needs of the country today. Mm -hmm. There's my rant. No, I enjoy listening to it. Um, (laughs) You know, hopefully, hopefully we're we're going to continue to live longer, too, over time, so long as our our standard of living doesn't change too much, Um, which brings me to healthcare. Um, so, you know, my son, uh, it was his birthday over the weekend, first birthday. Um, he, he recently had a, an allergic reaction and mm. he had to go to the hospital. It was a little scary for my wife. Um, I was in at home. We didn't, we still don't know what caused it. Um, so she asked for a referral to an allergy specialist and we were told that we needed to wait 18 months. So I brought this up with some friends. Uh, I've heard a bunch of similar stories about delays for various things that some people will say is urgent. Some people will say is not urgent. Some people will say, oh, we'll just do this instead. You know, there's all sorts of whether it's a, you know, uh, uh, an elective surgery can be, you know, needing a knee replacement or you've got a, you know, I, I have a, my, my wife's grandma had an issue with her ankle that, you know, looked unwalkable for years. She was waiting. So, you know, there's, many advantages, I believe, to a public system. And there's lots of, you know, I'm certainly not an advocate for the US style system where they, you know, I think it's something like 60% of bankruptcies are caused by medical debt. Um, But it also seems to make sense to me that if there's gaps in a system that private offerings should be able to fill them. And what I don't understand is it seems like our government's trying to shut that down. Um, You know, and then we also, we talked about innovation um, I think I mentioned, and, and maybe this is a provincial issue, and I, you know, I'm not so well briefed on this across country. And I think maybe you're closer to it than, but than I am. But you know, talk about innovation. Um, we talked about, uh, you know, AI and and all sorts of things that are changing there. Um, I, for one, have uh, been uh, reading Peter Atia's book. I think I've got a couple copies of it behind me. Outlive, where he talks about, you know, moving from medical 2.0 to medical 3.0. You know, where right now we're very focused on fast death problems, trying to treat something. A lot of resources go into very big health challenges right at the time that they become urgent. But there's a lot that can be done for patients. And I think, you know, economically for the system at whole, if we can try to tackle these things earlier uh, and treat them as slow death problems, um, just just deal with them decades ahead of time. But that kind of innovative thinking, um, you know, it's, it's often stuff that comes from private individuals, from startups who are early adopters of new delivery models, things like getting, you know, your cholesterol tested way sooner. Um, you know, and, and looking at instead of looking at what, the, you know, the, the current range of normal as a just to put it in this framework, the range of normal right now is a uh, somewhat alleges is a, as a range that once you're outside of it, you've got a very serious problem. But even elevated markers and other things you can look at uh, takes resources. But there's people that are that are proving these models um, that that, um, you know, this takes additional investment. But it's it's such a hard uh, industry to try to innovate in. And so. Um, you know, maybe this is my, my rant. Um, but so, so, you know, I guess my question for you is should, 
the government be able to stop two people, for example, a patient on one side and a doctor or nurse on the other, from conducting otherwise completely legal commerce between themselves, um, especially when it pertains to health? Or um, do I have this wrong? Am I, am I, you know, is this not a problem? Um, no, you've, you've pointed to a problem very well, Alex. Um, you described the need for innovation, particularly now with the ability for people to access new treatments, a different philosophy for, for wellness and for longer life and for, for more sporadic intervention as opposed to all at end of life. Um, innovation doesn't come in a monopoly, right? Monopolies don't innovate. They're, they're, they're able to, to, you know, sit and, and kind of stifle innovation. That's what we have in our system. Add to that the demographic challenges. And we have a system that is not innovating. It's just maintaining desperately the services we have. And they're just increasing wait times. So what we have to do is change that. And um, I, I promoted this in my election campaign. The, the Liberals launched a misleading attack against me, so much so that Twitter declared uh, Christopher Freeland's tweet against me to be misleading because they took one line out of my pro-private uh, sector into innovation in, into healthcare. My one line that they took out was universal access must be paramount. That's what's important about our program. There are many better healthcare services in, in Europe, uh, in Australia, that are universal in access, but have private provision of services where those private providers can sometimes bring innovation, can sometimes be, bring ease of access. And the governments there recognize there's an overall benefit to the entire system if you get wait times down and more innovation through a mixture of public and private. So mm -hmm. another missed area, I, I do love the Supreme Court. I'm a lawyer, I have great, so I'm dumping on them for no reason. So there's two maybe bad decisions. They missed the Como beer decision and the recent Canby Surgical Hospital decision, which was Brian Day's clinic from, from Vancouver, I think, or it's somewhere in BC, mm -hmm. um, took his case all the way to the Supreme Court. Why they missed out was there was a, a case 20 years ago called Cheruli from Quebec that allowed private uh, service provision in, in Quebec, according to the Quebec Civil Code and the Quebec Charter. We've been crying out for a similar decision to allow this for the rest of Canada. And the Supreme Court, I think, kind of wimped out, unfortunately. It, it, it's better run by the governments and the federal government should say, look to the provinces. If you want to bring in innovation and allow private provision of some services, you can do that as long as universality is there and there's a net benefit. Some provinces are already doing it. Brad Wall brought in diagnostic imaging so that for every private diagnostic uh, image appointment, uh, one subsequent name was removed from the public list so there was a net benefit from every additional dollar. That allows a lot of private capital to come into the system that just won't come in. Mm -hmm. It will allow faster replacement of equipment, whether PET scans or CAT scans or MRIs. Um, and then specialized providers will be able to really ramp up their service provision. And sadly, we haven't seen this in the public system and, and we need it. We need it desperately for the situations with uh, 
your uh, aunt or grandmother in the, the ankle. These mm-hmm. type of orthopedic type surgeries are now generally very routine, but we're so far behind because of an aging demographic for hips and knees. My brother is actually in that industry. They just can't keep up. So because those those surgeries are now considered routine, those could be handled by private surgical facilities. And that's what I think Ontario is now going to be exploring and some of the other provinces are exploring. And there will still be public operating facilities too, particularly for the more complex, less routine cases. Um, That's where we need to go. I think um, the Liberals' virtue signal on this too much, suggesting that any private sector money is going to destroy the system when dentistry has always been private. In most provinces, physiotherapy or uh, acupuncture or a lot of services have always been private. Many Mm -hmm. provinces have privatized blood collection and, and certain certain Mm -hmm. diagnostic tests because it's more efficient. Our system is already doing it. We're lying Mm -hmm. to ourselves if we don't Mm -hmm. recognize that. And the biggest two-tier, to finish my rant, is, as you probably know, if somebody, if their brother is a doctor or their neighbor or the buddy from their bowling league is a surgeon, there's always a little flex in the system to get seen by a friend. Mm-hmm. But you shouldn't have to be friends with a doctor no. to get through our wait lists. And that's no. happening. And when it comes to health, my my wife has had some, she has arthritis and she's had some surgical interventions. And we've driven 10 hours to be seen faster because it's quality of life, right? Yeah. People are going to do that. So yeah. uh, I, I hope the government stops, you know, virtue signaling on this. But I, I certainly do think that if there's a change of government, the Conservatives will certainly support provinces being masters of their own domain to bring in this type of better, faster, uh, more innovative access to care. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, well, I know we're running out of time, so maybe just one last question here. Speaking of health, um, I wanted to ask you about mental health. I know that mental health is an issue that you're passionate about. Uh, when you were running for prime minister, you mentioned a number of planned initiatives your government would, would have brought to life. What is your read of the current situation and what can we do as a country to uh, support the success of all Canadians? Well, there's two things. There's the role of government. There's the role of all of us. I think all of us are doing a heck of a lot better than 10 years ago. Um, we, we're all familiar with the Bell Let's Talk program. That's just one example of more conversation about mental health and wellness. People are much more open to talking to their parents or their friends or their coworkers about their struggles. And that's good because it certainly allows people to get access to, to help faster. Um, and it also destigmatizes these conversations, particularly men are higher, uh, higher vulnerability to suicide. And some groups like first responders or indigenous men are in very, very acute groups where uh, they're at risk unless they speak to someone and get help. So I do think society has come such a long way. Even in my 10 years as an MP, when I started talking about suicide prevention or mental health or post-traumatic stress injury for our soldiers, uh, I got blank stares. I got a lot of people uncomfortable with me even talking about these things. We're so much further ahead now. The other category though is government. Um, what is government doing to, 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 to make sure that as we as we destigmatize these conversations, you're going to have more people coming forward. Fortunately, mainly with 
easier to treat issues like anxiety or maybe addiction or, or depression, which all of which are quite common. And we should realize that people can get through those periods and live incredibly productive lives uh, if they get the right support. Um, but as more people come forward, there's not going to be the resources. And we're already seeing this. So in the election campaign, we had some dedicated funding, but we also had some tax incentive uh, and tax incentives to encourage more employers to develop wellness programming. Uh, I've been fortunate to work at some law firms. And when I worked at Procter and Gamble, they had employee assistance and other programs. The government has good programs so that, you know, people can get access to counseling, these sorts of things, but that's not standard yet with employers. So we tried to incentivize. So I think government doesn't have to just provide the money. It has to provide the positive incentives to, to, to encourage the private sector uh, to do this. And we also need to train more therapists, more psychologists, and more psychiatrists, because we're going mm -hmm. to, as we destigmatize this, see a lot more people asking for help. We, we just have to make mm -hmm. sure they don't have to wait a year to get it. Yeah. Yeah. And it can be quite difficult. I've got a, a number of people close to me that have had a number of, uh, um, needs for for help and it can be it can be quite tough and speaking of public versus private it seems like a lot of the options that are out there um can be quite expensive and difficult to access if you don't have the means to afford them so um yeah that's 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 uh, very interesting and thanks for your leadership on that um okay well you know what i know we're out of time uh, i just want to say thank you for your service both in the military and politics and as an ambassador of friendly canadians not afraid to talk tackle uh, hard problems um, I'm honored uh, that you've shared your time with me and our team today. And uh, so thank you very much. Well, thank you, Alex. I, as I said, we need more long form smart discussions and your platform has provided some great ones and really you're just getting started. So maybe when I'm in the private sector, we can come back and talk uh, more business, but it's been a real Let's pleasure to join you today. Likewise. Okay. Cheers. All right. Take soon. care.